out of Austin, Texas. You're listening to the Unsanctioned Citizen Podcast. Here's your host, Sheila Dean. Hello, everyone. This is Sheila, host of the Unsanctioned Citizen and That AI Show. I wanted to share a little bit about the National Vaccine Injury Compensation Program as part of the HRSA. If you or someone you know is suffering from the lasting effects of an illness or disability symptoms after taking a vaccine, please contact the Health Resources and Services Administration to learn more about the resources available to you that could help you and many others. For claims associated with the COVID-19 vaccine or other COVID-19 related countermeasures, please file your request for benefits with the Countermeasures Injury Compensation Program. Please visit injurycompensation.hrsa.gov to learn more and tell a friend. Hello, everyone. I'm going to invite all the people. Let's see if we can get some people to come to the room today. I don't know what's going on with this app. So... I am doing the intro to the trial of Julian Assange today. I made the quality decision not to play Sophie Tucker's bad shit as uh, my intro. I'm opting to go in on this a few minutes early. I was provoked unduly by some news. Um, China has been doing a lot in the Western Hemisphere, and they're buying up a lot of lithium. But they're buying it in Brazil. And while I tried to get that out on a previous podcast today, it didn't didn't go as well as I had intended. So let me just get this out, out of my face right now, which is to say that lithium is mined in Brazil. There's many lithium mines in Brazil. But they have been purchased by PRC. So when you buy Brazilian lithium, or lithium mined in Brazil, you're likely going to purchase it from the PRC government, or from an enterprise owned and nationalized by the PRC government, i.e. the PCCP. So if we buy lithium ion batteries, we're going to have to get the lithium from somewhere. Likely, it could be from from Brazilian lithium. Also, uh, Bolsonaro, I think, is the declared winner for the recent election. It was good to see Glenn Greenwald's face on, on the Tucker Carlson. So, Sophie Tucker actually is a part Brazilian band that has done really well in the Americas, but I just wanted to give a shout-out to old Glenn. You know, if he gets get some sort of derivative output from this podcast. I did want people to know that David Miranda is in rough shape. And so if you do pray at all and you have a good heart or you're you're just having a you're a bad heart with a good day, please pray and send healing healing goodness to Mr. David Miranda and and cause him to to wake from his coma and be healed and be restored fully. So I just wanted to say that. Also, I wrote I wrote another letter to Glenn Greenwald. So here's what I wrote to him cuz he wrote he wrote something on Sunday that was very thoughtful. It was a piece 
called Values and Character versus Political Identity, some personal reflections, Substack. I, I really recommend that everybody go go get it. Um, also, before I get going, I wanted to say um, to most everyone that um, Glenn is an excellent writer, and I miss him terribly on the network. He, he in here. I'm, I've been able to do some good quality content, but I do I do miss his presence here. So, um, let me see. Okay, so this was the values and character versus political identity. And, and basically the gist of it was that there was a Brazilian firefighter, uh, union leader, but he was also an evangelical and ex-congressman, and his uh, Cabo Daciolo, I think that's how you say his name, um, was once embraced by the left. He was like their hero. But then, of course, he was discarded and now vilified um, by them as a hater of LGBTs. And of course, Glenn is an, is a, a married gay man with three young children uh, to care for during this trial. Uh, Mr. Daciolo and and both David Miranda are, are are were you know elected officials in in this party that came out from the other leftist party that Lula belongs to. And um, so the politics down there is getting quite hairy. Bolsonaro is apparently the Trump equivalent. Um, so let's just see who won uh, Brazil, Brazil's election. I just want to see if it was confirmed. Election. Let me just bring it up here. There is a runoff election. So let's look at the news for sure. Tainted vote, ah, uh, tainted vote. <laughs> More contested elections. My God, uh, Brazilian President Jair Bolsonaro gets a second shot at re-election. This is seven hours ago. Polls underestimated the first round of voter support for incumbent, who gained over 43 percent of the vote, and then a chance to face leftist rival Luiz Inácio Lula da Silva. In the October 30th runoff, we're not there yet, so it's gonna be, it's gonna be a mud match. This is not over, so maybe maybe I will run the Sophie Tucker promo, but some other time I don't have time. So, values and character versus political identity. Uh, again, it was another situation where where they threw a perfectly good political actor right in the right in the dumpster for not being perfectly leftist at the politically opportune time how do many how do so many political campaigns get end up getting run by cavemen so i just wanted to say this quickly i i told this is what i said dear glenn i cried when i read this uh, god is keeping you strong for the boys and for david love is strong into that. Like so many, I'm really so fatigued from the constant harangues and the increasingly bizarre and unusual friendly fire, the gauntlet of purity tests, and the cult loyalty card demands from seemingly ugh, everyone. So imagine being told you were a criminal for the things that by no law of the land are criminal by acts. They're no, by no law of the land are they criminal acts. By people, 
who revile those laws of the of the people by the people because it did not emanate from the party. And then you move to the other side of the political town to get away just to find that the new political HOA wants dues paid to a paleo-arch caveman conservatism you know with fealty on abortion laws and where most of the red hat trucker hat wearing women are certifiable crazy Stepford wise as in I am clearly not making this up why lie to Glenn Greenwald no incentive none so it's like oh look I'm, I'm alone again. I guess I'll fall back to my professional safety posture discussing cyber-intensive risk management with the predictable psychos and InfoSec and the pool of fintech pirate larcenist mercantilists licensing voter data to she and Modi. At least when politicos are busy kicking up seasonal emo trash, I'm doing something more productive than stepping in someone's bellicose trap. So I'm not throwing the pro-life movement in the garbage if I just step away from what they're doing. I can absolutely denounce violence against women and support reproductive options from you know, away from political terrorists, but I'm not going to put on the bridal train and call myself a conservative either. I have a lot of vulnerabilities, like a lot of people, but I grew up conservative and there is zero margin for perceived moral error politically. So most of the female reject fatalities, think God's rejects, and otherwise non-conforming unmarried women end up in other party structures that don't requisite what conservatives do. So while they complain a lot about being abandoned and, and no, one, no one identifying with them and such things, they put enormous conditional requirements on women that they don't ask for men. So the liberal, quote-unquote, liberal women that they all complain about are just women who don't want to just speak when they're spoken to in high defensive tones and don the Trump burqa. It's stupid. I'm running away. So breathe deep. Maybe it's just what happens serving five to seven years in the American panopticon, meaning mass surveillance, where you have the Bloods, the Crips, the Aryans, the Latin Kings, and the gay wing of the prison all say, join or get raped. It's a mess. And I don't feel well when I think about it. So if some of my hair is precipitously falling out onto my shoulders as I write this, like falling out. Politics is toxic. So God bless you, I th but I think we all need a break. I have been praying for David too. You are not forgotten. This writing was super important, so I don't go absolutely crazy. Thank you so much. Best, Sheila Dean. And that was Letters to Glenn Greenwald. Woo-woo! Yay! So that now I can just move into my intro to the trial of Mr. Julian Assange, as written by Mr. Nils Meltzer. Special rapporteur to the UN delegation. <laughs> Let me go move here. I've got, oh, I've got Amy and Joshua. That's awesome. Okay, so here we go. Okay. So introduction for a special rep. Now this is um, just to put it here. This is the trial of Julian Assange, a story of persecution. Introduction. For a special rapporteur of the United Nations, 
Writing a book is not really a part of the job description, especially not a book on an individual case, an ex therefore in order. This book is intended to be an urgent appeal, an admonition to the international community of states that the system they have established for the protection of human rights is failing in a very fundamental way. A wake-up call to the general public because a systemic failure of such magnitude ought to raise alarm bells with any ordinary citizen of a democratic state. A call, therefore, that should be understood as a personal challenge to each and every one of us to open our eyes, to face the truth, and to take personal and political responsibility. As the Special Rapporteur on Torture, I am mandated by the United Nations Human Rights Council to monitor compliance with the prohibition of torture and to ill-treatment worldwide, to examine allegations of violations, and to transmit queries and recommendations to the states concerned with a view to clarifying individual cases. I was entrusted with this important mandate because I have been dealing with violations of human rights and humanitarian law for more than 20 years, whether as a senior security policy advisor to my government, as a professor of international law and an expert author, or as a Red Cross delegate and legal advisor in context of war and crisis. I visit thousands of prisoners, refugees, and their loved ones on four continents, many of them victors of victims of torture and violence. I have negotiated not only in places, sorry, palaces, ministries, and command centers, but also with soldiers and rebels in the no-man's land between front lines. Hence, when I investigate allegations of torture and ill-treatment, I know what I am talking about. I am not easily manipulated and don't tend to exaggerate, nor do I seek the limelight. My world is one of diplomatic dialogue and mutual respect, but always also truth and integrity, because diplomacy must never be allowed to become an end in of itself, but must always remain a means to a higher end. In my case, this higher end is to achieve compliance with the universal prohibition of torture and ill-treatment, as well as the investigation, punishment, and redress of violations. This purpose I must always pursue and may never sacrifice. If it can no longer be achieved through diplomatic channels, I must choose other means. One of these means, dear reader, is the present book. As to rephrase a martial maxim for my peaceful purposes, this book could be described as a continuation of diplomacy by other means. I write this book because when investigating the case of Julian Assange, I came across compelling evidence for political persecution and gross judicial arbitrariness, as well as of deliberate torture and ill-treatment. But the responsible states refused to cooperate with me in clearing up these allegations and to initiate the investigative measures required by international law. I visited Julian Assange in prison with a team of medical doctors and spoke to the authorities in charge, as well as to lawyers, witnesses, and experts. I have repeatedly expressed my concerns to all four states involved the United Kingdom, Sweden, Ecuador, and the United States through the official channels available to me. I have requested clarifications and recommended specific measures. None of the four governments were willing to engage in a constructive dialogue. Instead, I was confronted with diplomatic platitudes or sweeping rhetorical attacks. When I insisted, the dialogue was terminated by the governments. The dialogue was terminated by the governments. 
At the same time, the persecution and mistreatment of Julian Assange intensified. Violations of his due process rights became increasingly blatant, and my public appeals calling on the authorities to respect human rights were ignored. Even from within the UN system, I need to break out here and say today is the 16th birthday of WikiLeaks. I just wanted to say that. So, increasingly blatant and my public appeals calling on the authorities to respect human rights were ignored. Even from within the UN system, I received hardly any support, with the notable exception of a few courageous and determined individuals. I expressed my concern about the obstructive stance of the involved states both at the Human Rights Council in Geneva and at the General Assembly in New York, without any substantial reaction. I repeatedly asked the High Commissioner for the Human Rights for a personal meeting about the matter, but was fobbed off. I called on other states to exert their influence, but virtually always faced an awkward wall of silence. The institutions and processes I had always believed in were failing before my eyes. You may wonder why I should speak out so forcefully in this particular case. After all, Julian Assange is hardly the only victim of torture who has not received justice, nor has is his abuse the most severe form of torture I have encountered in my work. All of this is correct. The reason for my strong engagement in this case is that its importance extends far beyond Julian Assange as an individual and, indeed, far beyond the states directly involved. It reveals a generalized systemic failure gravely undermining the integrity of our democratic institutions, our fundamental rights, and the rule of law more generally. It is a systemic failure that I routinely encounter in my daily work, but that usually plays out behind the scenes and therefore remains largely concealed from the broader public. The Assange case is a story of a man who is being persecuted and abused for exposing the dirty secrets of the powerful, including war crimes, torture, and corruption. It is a story of judicial, deliberate judicial arbitrariness in Western democracies that are otherwise keen to present themselves as exemplary in the area of human rights. It is a story of willful collusion by intelligence services behind the backs of national parliaments and the general public. It is a story of manipulated and reporting in the mainstream media for the purpose of deliberately isolating, demonizing, and destroying a particular individual. It is a story of a man who has been scapegoated by all of us for our own societal failure to address government corruption and state-sanctioned crimes. It is thus also a story about each and every one of us, our lethargy, our self-deception, and our co-responsibility for the political, economic, and human tragedies of our time. For two years I have intensively investigated the case of Julian Assange. For two years I have unsuccessfully tried to get the responsible states to cooperate, and for two years I have publicly communicated my concerns in official reports press releases, and interviews before international bodies and parliamentary groups, but also during academic panel discussions and at numerous other events. Now the time has come to publish this book, which summarizes my investigation and conclusions, as well as the available evidence, in an easily accessible form. I decided to take this step because I had run out of viable options within the system, 
and because my silence or inaction would have been tantamount to complicity in the cover-ups of serious crimes. Both those exposed by Assange and those committed against him, and thus against all of us. In exercising my mandate, I do not feel responsible primarily to the serving governments, but to the UN member states themselves and to their people. They have committed to compliance with universal human rights, and therefore they are also entitled to know what their governments are doing with the power delegated to them. This is especially true when it comes to the practice of torture and abuse, when our fundamental freedoms of expression of the press and of information are being deliberately suppressed, and when those in power claim impunity for corruption and the most serious crimes. So I suppose, in a way, by writing this book, I have become a whistleblower. I have always carried out my investigations objectively and impartially, duly considering all of the available evidence and reaching my conclusions in good and to the best of my judgment and conviction. In the case of Julian Assange, this process was rendered particularly difficult by the complete refusal of involved governments to cooperate with my investigation and to provide the requested evidence and clarifications. Nevertheless, over time I managed to accumulate about 10,000 pages of reliable procedural files, correspondence, and other evidence from a multitude of sources, while for reasons of privacy and source protection names will only be used where necessary for the credibility of my conclusions, I am deeply indebted to countless individuals for valuable information and support of all kinds. All those concerned know who they are, and that this book would couldn't without their precious help. My investigation of the Assange case can be compared to assembling a huge puzzle, piece by piece, much like a detective. I had to solve an equation with many unknowns in the hope of disentangling the institutional responsibilities for a serious crime. While numerous important puzzle pieces may still be missing, the overall picture is consistent and convincing. That said, as long as the involved states continue to hide behind a convenient veil of secrecy, my conclusions and admittedly cannot re be regarded as absolute, complete, and final. Rather, they should be seen as the result of two years of careful investigation carried out under adverse circumstances. Should the governments in question decide to cease their obstruction and provide contradicting evidence or clarifications, any such input will be gratefully received and taken into account in my future pronouncements in this case. An important purpose of this book, establishing the truth, would then have been achieved. My most important message is that ultimately the trial of Assange is not really about Assange. It is about the integrity of our constitutional institutions, and thus the essence of the Republic in the original sense of the word. At stake is nothing less than the future of democracy. I do not intend to leave our children in a world where governments can disregard the rule of law with impunity, and where telling the truth has become a crime. I have always understood my UN mandate as a duty to use my privileged position in order to protect human rights, to expose violations and systemic shortcomings, and to fight for the integrity of our institutions, speaking truth to power as it has been so aptly termed. This I have done since I was first appointed by the Human Rights Council. I have addressed issues as diverse as police brutality, the inhumanity of prevailing migration policies, psychological methods of torture, and the cruelty of domestic violence. I have also highlighted the interrelations between corruption and torture, 
as well as the collective patterns of self-deception without which torture and ill-treatment could not be practiced with such impunity worldwide. My work did not make me popular with everyone because I challenged the impunity of the powerful and the hypocrisy of the self-righteous. In the specific case of Julian Assange, I have been repeatedly accused of betraying my neutrality and impartiality in order to side with Assange. This is not the case. If anything, I was initially biased against Assange and even refused to get involved with this case. Throughout my career, I have attached great importance to the objectivity, neutrality, and impartiality of my work, but once my investigation of a case leads to the conclusions that serious human rights violations have indeed been committed, I cannot reasonably be expected to remain neutral between perpetrators and victims. My objectivity as an independent legal expert then requires me to side with the victim of torture, with human rights, and with justice. Therefore, I write this book not as a lawyer for Julian Assange, but as an advocate for humanity, truth, and the rule of law. Okay, so I'm going to leave it there, and we will migrate to part one, a glimpse behind the curtain at some other point. If somebody would like to call in, um, you are welcome to do so now. We're 25 minutes in, there's about five minutes left of this particular hosted newscast, or is it a newscast? It's a reading, it's a public reading. Thank you for all the wonderful emojis. It's a beautiful fall day, and I encourage everyone to at least add, add your personal thoughts to the chat if you don't want to call in. <sighs> so let me just add, since nobody's talking, I'm going to go here to see if there's anything on WikiLeaks' 16th birthday. So there is a birthday party. If you go to All Ends Inn, <laughs> happy sweet 16th, um, October 3rd through the 8th. And it's somewhere, I think in London. I think this is being held in London. So they're, they're WikiLeaks support events that are ongoing. So I'll just read this little little thing here. So we invite journalists, ABC staff, and members of the public to raise a toast to WikiLeaks, to truth, to democracy, to whistleblowers, to Julian Assange. WikiLeaks is a multinational media organization, associated library, founded by Walkley Award-winning publisher Julian Assange in 2006. WikiLeaks specializes in the analysis and publication of large data sets of censored or otherwise restricted official materials involving war, spying, and corruption. It has so far published more than 10 million documents and associated analyses. Thus far, WikiLeaks has a perfect record of 100% document authentic authentication excuse me, and resistance to all censorship's attempts. Censorship attempts. Pardon. Let me just take a swig of this. Excuse me. October 3rd, which was yesterday, there was a barbecue party. ABC's offices in South Bank. Okay, today is the October 4th. 
There is an 11th hour vigil for Julian Assange in Melbourne. So that's in Australia. So all the Aussies in the world that join this newscast, which, you know, maybe there are maybe one, maybe none. Um, <laughs> but we'll be there in spirit. Let me see if there's anything. It's mostly in Asia. <laughs> But we are with you in spirit, um, Mr. Julian Assange and his wife and his kids, of which there are many. Which is interesting. You know, they when they came out against him, they came out, they really dug deep and they like, zoomed like all of his family relations, which, you know, that actually pulled in other members of his family. His father, his brother, his mother... You know, they all came out to bat for him, and that was really cool to see. He's got family. He's got lots of family. So, um, with that, I've got one minute left of this listening session. So, if anybody would like to call in, they can. Otherwise, it's been wonderful uh, being with you today, and I'm thankful that Amy, Miranda, Shardall, apparently... Joshua and Rando listeners who just decided to drop in from Colin uh, called in. So thank you for this first reading of Intro to the Gile Trial Sorry, Trial. I can say it. Of Julian Assange. Thanks for listening. Before you go, hit the subscribe button. Remember that callers are welcome. Subscribers can access Unsanctioned Citizen Podcast Archives at Substack. Automatic iHeartRadio podcasts and call in. Please stay in touch. We want to hear from you. Visit SheilaMDean.com.